we for years in terms of thinking about why you know why we go to all the effort of creating these mixed-use environments is 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 to have something that is truly differentiated from a commodity and most of the tenants we lease to are in our projects because they understand their space as a tool in recruiting and retaining the best talent right and so I still think that is going to apply, but it may be that offices are, you know, become more of what I would call a culture hub or a collaboration hub than 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 thinking about it as if people are coming there every day. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Fort. I am really excited to have Jonathan Brinsden with me today. Jonathan is the CEO of Midway Companies down in Houston, Texas, one of the largest mixed-use developers in Houston and across the state. They have built some of the most iconic properties in Houston, uh, have a portfolio of $2 billion, are one of the most thoughtful community builders that I've ever come across. Their, their attention to detail and the amount of effort they put into building places that people love uh, speaks for itself. If you ever have a chance to, and you're in Houston, I highly encourage you to go check out one of their properties. We talk a lot today about Jonathan's story and how he came to Midway We dive deep into the Midway company and how they think about real estate, um, how they think about designing projects, the process that they go through, uh, the level of detail and attention. We touch base on Houston, what's going on in the Houston market, kind of in a post-COVID world. We go through the asset types that Midway focuses on, office, retail, hotel, and residential and kind of the current state of affairs there and some of the insights that they have into uh, how these asset classes will progress in the future. We talk about just kind of development and some of the nuances that make development tough. And we talk about his leadership of ULI, where he's currently the chairman of Americas. This really is a fascinating episode, and thank you again for joining me today. Jonathan, thank you for joining me on the show today. Yeah, great to be with you. I appreciate you taking the time. Can can we just start with just a little bit of background on kind of your story and and leading uh, you to where you are today at Midway? Sure. I always tell people growing up, there for whatever reason, there were two things I was fascinated with, and that was uh, was buildings and cars. And originally went to A and M to get a mechanical engineering degree to hopefully then go to automotive design school. I was not a stellar student my first year at A&M. Um, engineering was a challenge. I like to tell people I got a 3.6. Unfortunately, that was the sum of my first two semesters. <laughs> so uh, 1.8 and 1.8. So I switched over to architecture, which was actually great. It was sort of a, you know, a, a creative avenue. Um, and actually, when I look back on it, beyond being sort of about architecture, it was actually a great problem-solving degree. And um I did that along with construction science and was fortunate to intern intern with a construction company that was owned by a development company. And that's really where I got a window into, 
you know, what that really was and the role was and, and quickly decided that's what I wanted to do. So stayed and got my master's to really get the business uh, side. And when I got out of graduate school, it, it was in 1994, where really Texas was still recovering from the late 80s and not a lot of development going on. And I interviewed with all the usual suspects and and folks just, you know, said that's that's nice, but, you know, we don't have any development jobs. And so fortunately, a guy at my church had heard that I was interested. He said, look, I, you know, I've had to lay a lot, a lot of people off through the downturn, but I've got this one project and it'll be easier for you to get a job if you have a job. So just, you know, come work with me and um, see how it goes. And it was a great experience because I got to do everything sort of soup to nuts. And um, I actually ended up staying about seven years, became president of the company and we built shopping centers and some medical office buildings and some hotels. And we did a lot and I learned a lot. We got to a point where he and I sort of disagreed on some fundamental decisions. And, and at the time, that was really, to me, it was about values. You know, it, it was, there was not, none of these things were gray areas for me. And so I opted to leave and actually picked five people I was going to reach out to in the industry. And the first one I, I called said, I know exactly where you need to go. And I, I thought he was joking. And, and he said, I'm, I'm going to call this guy and call you back. So he called back, said, okay, call this guy, Brad Friels. And Brad's our, our chairman. And um, Brad and I met the next next couple of days, hit it off, sort of negotiated. And that was October of 2000. We kind of agreed on a deal, but I still had two hotels under construction. And I, I had promised the bank I would not leave. I told them I was leaving, but I would not leave before they're open. And so... Those hotels opened on a Friday in April of 2001. They opened and I started at Midway on the following Monday. And, and really the, the, the fit was Midway has, had grown up, been around for a long time, founded in Dallas. And uh, our name comes from Midway Road. And Metropolitan Business Park was a big, big uh, project of theirs. But Brad had just gotten sort of um, frustrated essentially on how commoditized, you know, the, the industrial build to suit business had gotten and some other things. And, and I think just from an interest level, he was ready to, to try some other things. So my job was really to come in and, and diversify the, uh, the company into to doing other things. And, um, so we did a number of office projects and some hotels and corporate headquarters, but, City Center, and I'm sure we'll talk about it at some point. Really, the, the opportunity to buy the old town of Country Mall in, in 2004 was sort of, for me, that was the real pivot point um, in terms of what I was doing and how we were gonna gonna grow the company. So, I love it. Well, we were gonna talk about that a little later, but why don't we just go into it right now? Uh, that's one of the most notable projects y'all have done. Can you just kind of describe kind of how that deal came about and kind of what the last 15 years of working on that project has been like? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, we've been blessed and it's, it's been really rewarding not to say it's, um, hasn't been without its, its challenges. But I think one of the, the things I love to look at, you know, was our original offering memorandum on it. And I read it today and think I wouldn't have given us, you know, $10 to, yeah. <laughs> to, go, to go. But in a, in a funny way, we bought the mall in May of 2004. We did a ton of research. We went to, you know, 17, I think 27 projects in 17 cities. And we had done each of the pieces, you know, uh, among each of us collectively. 
So it wasn't that we didn't know the products. It was really learning how do you put it all together. And I think there was a there was a real sense of stewardship that it was a special piece of property and we had opportunities to flip it and you know big box retail could have gone on it. We had a very successful open air shopping center next to us with town and country village. And we just had conviction that that we were going to do it. And if, if we did it and did it right, that that would be a real springboard for us as a, a company, which played out. We, uh, we started in, in 07. And I think the opportunity to get it capitalized, honestly, was just 2007 was a very frothy capital market. Then took us two years to build it. And then we delivered into, you know, what was potentially one of the scariest and worst economic environments with the financial crisis. And we had one of the, the blessings in some way is we had capitalized each use independently. So it actually insulated us from, you know, some of the, we, we had a bank fail, we had an institutional partner fail, we had a super high net worth individual as a partner fail. And so fortunately, you know, those were somewhat dispersed in different areas. And so it really, you know, helped us keep the whole thing together. And I give our equity partners, especially on the retail, a ton of credit that they stuck with us in terms of the long-term vision. They, they could have said, look, just go fill it up. Well, that, that, that is completely counter to, you know, the environment you're trying to create and all the synergies you're, you're, you're trying to create. And, you know, it, it's about, you know, the value being greater than the sum of the parts. But if you get one part wrong, then it detracts from the rest of it. And so we, uh, we were blessed and, um, you know, it's hard to believe now it's over 10 years old. And so today we're having fun with it in terms of starting to think about how do we, how do we reimagine this place and where are there opportunities for densification? And, uh, and we've, we've bought a few adjacent tracks and, like Marathon, you know, we just recently sold a, a track to Marathon Oil and, you know, there's going to be 2,000 people there and that in itself will, you know, add a whole nother dynamic to the project. So it's it's just been fun to watch it evolve and continue to evolve. And as I said, it, it, we've been blessed and in, in some ways I get tired talking about it because, you know, we, we have so much other things going on. I love to talk about those, but at the same time, it, it has been a, a, a remarkable project and extremely proud of it. And like I said, it still, still evolves and uh, uh, as I'm sure it will for the next 10 years. So. Yeah. Just to paint that picture of 04, this mall comes up for sale. Was it a vacant mall? Did it have tenants? Like, what was the draw yeah. to it? How big was it? Like, what? why was this the, the magic property to buy? Yeah, so we, we were able to buy an off-market transaction, and essentially an individual had bought it from an insurance company that had foreclosed on it. And for reference, you know, we had Memorial City Mall literally a mile just east down the road. The reality is the market didn't need two malls within a mile of each other. So a number of the department stores had left to go to Memorial City. We had a Neiman Marcus that was still open, but it was about a million square foot, three-story mall that had 45 tenants um, that were largely mom and pops. And the gentleman who had bought it didn't really appreciate, I think, what he was buying and the intricacies of the legal structures in a mall. So essentially... If one of those mom and pop tenants were open or one of the anchor tenants was open, he was obligated to operate the entire mall. And so there you were, right? Electricity, parking garages. I mean, you're, you're spending a lot of money to keep something operating that fundamentally you just, it's a cost structure you can support. And so 
you know, he loved it. He didn't really want to sell it, but I think we, we went to him with an offer that still made sense for us from a basis standpoint, but kind of gave him the opportunity to make a good entrepreneurial return. The funny part was when he agreed to do it, he said, okay, we're going to do it, but we're going to do it fast. You guys have 30 days due diligence and 30 days to close, which was a lot to, lot to work through and for, for buying them all. So, Yep. And then when you bought it, did you have to ask the other tenants to leave or let their leases run dry or like, how did y'all? Yeah. Well, it, the, it, you know, talk about being sometimes uh, luckier than you are good. So the, the linchpin in the whole thing was Neiman Marcus. So we, even if we bought it from this gentleman, we, we were going to have the same issue he did if Neiman Marcus wanted to stay open and operating, meaning we would have to operate the mall and we couldn't tear it down, which ultimately we wanted to get to the land. So we called Neiman Marcus and at the time, the director of real estate, he was just a, a great guy. And, and we said, look, we're, this is our vision. Would you, you know, release us from um, the encumbrances? We, we would, you know, we could, we could let your store be freestanding in this new, you know, open air mixed use environment. And, and he, he was actually, you know, very gracious and on board with that involved him in the master planning process. And um, some of the early plans had, had the Neiman Marcus in it. And then he called back one day and said, would y'all be interested in a sale leaseback? And, and we said, well, sure, that's, you know, we would love to control that real estate. And he wanted a, a really short time frame to get out of the lease. And he said, look, he said, I, I'm under confidentiality and I can't tell you exactly what's going on. All I can tell you is if you want to get back to the dirt on all of this, you should do this. And ultimately, what we learned is the company was for sale. That's when Neiman Marcus was sold to a private equity firm. They had never closed a store in their history, but they had slated uh, with the acquisition to close two stores, one of which was this location. And so, um, so that was really the you know that was the the key, and it was just pure luck from a timing standpoint. And then you said you went and you visited twenty seven different locations around the country, and and maybe my question is. You know, a lot of development for folks that don't develop, they don't understand how much planning and things happen in the years prior to seeing things go vertical on a deal that big. And, I, and, I, and I'm sure it has evolved. Like, how do you come to, OK, this is the final plan? Because when you're just messing around <laughs> with architects and paper and you're moving buildings around, everything can seem great. Like, at what point do you just say, like, OK, this is it? Right. I, th I think one of the most instructive things from, I, I would say, and we still do it to this day, but when we go off and do research for a project, one of the things we try to do is distill down what, what do we have conviction about as the guiding principles for a project? Because, and those guiding principles are kind of like a North Star, because a lot of things are going to come at you, right? And you're going to have to make decisions to your point. At some point, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna have to stick with it and and, and move on. And so, those guiding principles were are, are critically important. One of the the guiding principles was really this idea of sort of authenticity relative to urbanism. A number of projects we visited felt a bit more like Disneyland, if you will. It it, it sort of was a a thin veiled effort at, at urbanism and even the way the architecture and things were doing. So, one of the things we worked with the land planner was to be authentic about urbanism, essentially you, you need an urban grid. And we, so we set up kind of a street system and a master plan that then allowed us a lot of flexibility within what would fit in that street grid. 
And as an example, I mean, like Lifetime Fitness, which was an early, you know, really important deal. They moved three times on the site before, you know, we, we finalized the deal. But essentially, the integrity of the master plan never changed. We were just kind of plugging them into different locations. And so, but to your point, I mean, we bought the, the mall in May of 2004. It took us the research in, in the second half of 2004 and master planning and really all the way through 06 to really have our arms around, you know, specifically what we were going to do. And it's like anything, you know, Brad Friels, our chairman has a saying, and, you know, I agree. He said, every time we start a project, it's like throwing a party. We just don't know who's going to show up. <laughs> and it's true, you know, and, and it's true. You, you have to be, you know, reactive and proactive about opportunities when they present themselves. And um, a lot of the times you just don't have, you don't anticipate what's going to come at you. And so, uh, so I think that's one of the challenges. And, and then to my earlier comment, just knowing that every decision you make, especially about a use or even a tenant, impacts everything else, right? So, you know, like an example of lifetime, lifetime set a quality standard. There were probably other fitness options, but they wouldn't have had the same impact on the project as a whole as as really working with lifetime and choosing them. On the website I read two million square feet, but like where do we stand today with that project? Yeah, so it's just a little over 2 million, uh, which is the original 37 acres. We bought an additional six acres, half of which Marathon is on now. So they've added another 500,000 feet. We have a, a sixth office building that's a planned adjacent to them. That's another 300,000 feet. And then we also bought another three and a half acres adjacent to us that has a, a second hotel and another uh, office building. And so when it's all said and done, it should grow to just north of, of three, 3 million feet when it's done. And I'm going to go ahead and say it for you. I uh, had the pleasure of walking several of your projects. Y'all are incredible at what you do. And I've asked you this when we've been walking around. And as a developer myself, when I walk around y'all's projects, there's so many little details that are happening to create the experience that people you know, are experiencing when they're walking through a project. I can't remember exactly how I asked it for you, but I said, how do you program all this stuff? And what, you know, how do you know which events are going to be in the the central green space and which flowers are going to be in the pots and the music that's playing? So maybe can you walk me through like the programming of a, and y'all have, y'all have tons of mixed use developments going on, but how do you think about programming? Is it almost a business in itself? And do tenants pay like an HOA or uh, is it included yeah. in the triple nets for all that uh, outdoor experience? Yeah. So I'll start high level. I mean, I, I think in any of our projects, ultimately what we're trying to build or connect with is community, right? And so we see programming as that you know probably one of the most important connection points and i'll i'll be honest when we originally opened city center in between the property management and the programming we completely underestimated what it would take and so what i what i tell folks is you know running these projects is truly like running a small city it's 27 you know 24 7 it never turns off and you know it takes a a, a ton of time and effort and focus to to do it well and do it right. The event programming, you know, we 
So last year, we programmed 578 events across our portfolio. And so we're, you know, you, you realize you're in that business and, and, and we have a, you know, a robust marketing team that, that does that. What's rewarding about it is in the life of a project, early on, you're planning all those events. And then as it becomes a community place, the community then and tons of people come to you and say, can I do this or can I do that? Or, hey, can we hold this here? And so it's really rewarding that suddenly your calendar that you were planning 100% of swings actually, you know, something like 60 to 70% is literally being driven by the community. And so, you know, it's the local Mustang club coming here. But the one that shocks me is, you know, a Lamborghini club said, we want to have an event and we've done it now for four years. And we now have people that come from all over the world, you know, that for that event, that's how it's grown. They have, they have people, they have, you know, cars shipped here. And so that's the fun part. I mean, that's, that's where you realize, okay, we've, we've done something right in the sense that everyone else feels that like this is theirs and, and they have some level of ownership and, and this is where they come to, to interact with their community. So. And on the last comment you made about feeling authentic and, and, and it not feeling kind of like this Disneyland, are there certain things that kind of you've, you know, after all this experience that are kind of amenities that'll stand the test of times and maybe some things that, you know, you, when you see them, you're like, this is a fad and it won't be an amenity for long. Like maybe my question is, what are the things that make an amenity have longevity? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and, and I think it is difficult at times, you know, to resist decisions that, that may be short term or maybe a, a fad. But, you know, we, we've always had conviction, I think, about health and wellness and, and, you know, felt like that that is something that will have legs for a long time. And so whether it's the specific fitness tenant we have or the fact that you know, we, we have outdoor space and, and, you know, we even do fitness programming in, in the plaza. And then, and then really among a choice of, of food and beverage options that, you know, that offer health, healthy choices. And so I, I think that's one. And there is a, a real kind of degree of authenticity and human connection in that. And mm-hmm. So, you know, we try to find things that we think are longer term trends and, and not just sort of, you know, kind of short term gimmicky connection points. And and in some ways, the the programming we do now it is a and even where we add amenities is a is a process of really saying no to a lot of things to make sure we say yes to the right things. All right, I'm going to shift a little bit. Want to talk about Houston? Just in general, y'all are one of the largest developers and owners of property in Houston. So just want to get a kind of an update on where Houston stands today, and then I want to dive further into different asset types that y'all work on. So. First question, how is Houston kind of holding up in a post-COVID world? Yeah, I think for Houston, it's it's a little tough right now in the sense that we, we have the double whammy. We, we, we have an oil and gas market overhang along with COVID. And I think that's that's kind of exasperated some, some market issues. But the city feels open. And I think everyone's trying to find that balance. And I know we are as a landlord is to how do we have some sense of normalcy and yet be honest and respectful and understanding of the situation we're in and, and make sure we're not putting people at, at risk? And I think, 
you know, working with a lot of our tenants and and even like our programming and those kind of things is is really trying to balance all of that because if you distill what we're about, which I mentioned is is kind of building community, which is fundamentally bringing people together, right? COVID has now put the world on the opposite end of that spectrum. And so I think we're trying to balance on, you know, within reason where, where should we be right now and where, where can we, can we go with this? And uh, it's been a challenge. Is Houston as dependent on the oil and gas industry today as it was maybe 20 years ago, or has it been weaning off oil and gas for the last couple of decades? Yeah, I think it's a lot more resilient than it was, but you, you also can't ignore the fact that it's still a, a big a big segment of our economy and a and a big employer. So for a big part of recent history that's it's been a big driver of um of jobs and actually, you know, high paying jobs. In some ways the, the oil and gas industry today looks more like the tech industry in terms of the type of people they they hire. So when that flattens out or, or 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 we have layoffs, I mean we feel it. It's not it's not like the it's it's not a blue collar right phenomenon. It is truly some of the you know the, the highest paying jobs we have in the city. Uh, last question on Houston. Houston's notorious for not having zoning uh, over most of the city. So my first question is: that ultimately a good thing for developers, or is it not a good thing, or is that? The wrong question to ask. Yeah. So, and I think you have to be careful of separating the notion of zoning and the notion of planning. And we've gotten better in Houston about, I mean, I don't think we're ever going to get to a point in Houston where we have zoning. I'm completely fine with that. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't have planning. And actually, planning is done both at the sort of city right citywide level but then you know one of the most powerful things we have is we have some great management districts that that really also serve that long-term planning and so whether it's you know uptown district or um central houston you know those they actually play a really important role and i think what we've got to be better out at houston is making sure those are not plans done in isolation that we're you know we're connecting the dots and understanding where where the urban fabric overlaps. And I think we're getting a lot better at that in, in Houston. The other thing is, is I actually believe no zoning is a positive and there's not been specific research on it, but I think, you know, we're the most diverse city in the country with probably the least amount of racial tension. And I actually believe not having zoning plays a role in that. I think we end up having a much more integrated community without zoning. Interesting. I've never thought about it that way. So Midway focuses on office, retail, hotel, and residential and their mixed-use deals. I'm going to start with the two maybe most talked about right now, retail and hotels. Yeah, I was going to say two of those keep me up at night. Yeah. <laughs> I saw you I I heard you take a deep breath. I'm just going to ask like the the most obvious question is like and I'll ask it for each asset class, but what are you seeing in retail? kind of now and, and maybe just a little bit of color of how that's progressed since March? Sure. So I think from a macro standpoint, and, and this is across many businesses, just not real estate, but in a way, COVID has accelerated trends that already existed. And, and so I think that's a lot of what we're, what we're dealing with. In retail, it, it, there's no way around when, when essentially a city is shut down that, that 
those businesses are are impacted. Our view has been we're going to do everything in our power to work with our tenants to help them survive and be successful. And I think fortunately so far in the industry, especially on the lending side, everyone's been very practical in understanding that if you believe the universe of tenants is shrinking and you have good tenants, then you figure out how to keep those tenants. The other thing I would say is uh, it's it's been pretty amazing and exciting to watch how some tenants have adapted and, and figured out right how to how to keep business, how to do you know farmers markets, and how to you know it's just been that part has been fun in the context of. Um, you know, a lot of difficult things. And and so it, the other thing I would say is if a business was weak pro, pre-COVID, then it's just exposed the weaknesses. Good businesses will will come out the other side of, of COVID. And so we're just focused on trying to be a good good partner with our our, our retail and and restaurant tenants. And for the most part, knock on wood, you know, I think we're we're all in pretty good shape. I do worry a little bit about just Sort of how long this overhang, you know, is, and and when when we quote might get back to normal, whatever that is. And so, um, the hospitality side is is probably the most challenging. And again, Houston's a little bit exasperated because we are not a big leisure travel city. We are largely a uh, a business travel city. Although we do actually have great weekend business in our hotels because they're in the context of our mixed use projects. We we tend to get the weddings and the staycations and the, so we, we do better than most. Um, but then additionally, you have the overhang of the oil and gas business, which is also a big, a big hotel driver, especially in international business. I mean, in our two hotels in Houston, you know, we, we, on any given year, we have people from more than 50 countries. I couldn't name 50 countries, but I mean, that gives you a sense of the diversity of, of, of the travel. And so we are actually, you know, we're not doing great, but we're actually building market share and doing much better than our our, our competitive set. But it's, um, I, I think, the reality is until we until we have a vaccine or something that makes a big companies feel comf- comfortable going back to work and and comfortable traveling, it's it's going to be you know it's going to be tough. And I'm with you a hundred percent on. COVID's just exposed trends, exposed weaknesses. It's further advanced kind of the use of technology. As it relates to retail, um, is there is leasing activity? Are tenants out in the market or is everything kind of just dead right now? Yeah, no, it's so like at City Center, we're working on five new retail lease deals, wow. several of which are, are fa- fairly big names you would, you would recognize, one of which wants to be open by Christmas. And so... It's few and far between, but there is activity. And again, to the extent tenants were successful and they're really good businesses, some are going to have opportunities to get into space that you know wasn't available before. So I think you're going to see some tenants be proactive. And you know, on projects we're pre-leasing, we had a number of large projects we were going to start early this year and then um, postponed. But just in the last month, really, we've seen interest kind of on a pre-leasing level of, of, of certain folks wanting to get you know, ready to have conversations about doing something new. And so that's been been refreshing. I love it. My last question as it relates to retail, are there, is there anything that you're starting to see in like uh, lease proposals that you've never seen before, force majeure, just what are they asking? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I think, you know, the, the the sort of call it what you want, but I'll call it the pandemic clause, which was not in a lot of leases, which is essentially going to, you know, allow a tenant to shut down and not pay rent is going to work its way into the leases. And and I think that's that's probably going to be the case for, for office as well. Um, but it's certainly been more prevalent um, in recent conversations in retail. And I think it's really an insurance question, right? It's sort of a bi- a business interruption question. And so either we're going to have to insure, if they're going to be adamant about it, then we're going to have to insure against it on the landlord side. And I think the real question for the tenants is, you know, are they better off paying us to get the insurance or are they better off insuring themselves against those situations? And so it's going to it's going to be a really, you know, I, I, there's going to be a cost, and so I think the question is who's going to who's going to bear that cost, and and, and maybe more importantly, what's the most cost effective way to insure it? Um, office smaller businesses tend to be going back quicker. Large corporations are, you know, you're hearing not moving in till 2021, middle of 2021, 2022, but most of them are still paying rent. I guess the question is are are your tenants and are Houston uh, office tenants showing up? And then do you have an opinion on is there permanent damage to office with work from home and remote becoming kind of more apparent to everybody? Yeah. So uh, first I'll take take sort of or I'll agree with what you said. I think we're, we're tending to see the trend was, you know, smaller private companies coming back to work. We were back in the office October 1st. And, you know, if I use my own team as somewhat of a gauge is we had a lot of people ready to come back. There was sort of a honeymoon period of work working from home that was maybe 60, maybe 90 days. And then it got to be Groundhog's Day and they were they were like, okay, this is not <laughs> yeah. this is not fun anymore. I'm I'm ready to to go back to the office. You know, I, I think one of the, the 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 things that I know we deal with it with our team and is still a challenge for folks is, is how people are handling the school situation. And so I, I think we we forget that kids going to school is such an integral part of how people's lives work. And so you have that challenge. You know, in terms of 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 well, and and then I'll say the big companies, especially the international companies, are the ones that are moving slowest. And I think that's just because they have a broader perspective beyond the US and you know say what's going on in Europe and so um, they seem to be the ones that are that are moving slowest in terms of long-term impact I, I don't think we can be naive and say you know this experiment if you will and working from home isn't going to impact how people use office space and we for years in terms of thinking about why, you know why we go to all the effort of creating these mixed use environments is 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 to have something that is truly differentiated from a commodity and most of the tenants we lease to are in our projects because they understand their space as a tool in recruiting and retaining the best talent right and so I still think that is going to apply but it may be that offices are you know, become more of what I would call a culture hub or a collaboration hub than 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 thinking about it as if people are coming there every day. And so, you know, work from home might be one or two days a week. And but I think the net, you know, a lot of the tenants I talk to, if they really think through what that culture hub looks like, it's probably 
on a net basis, you know, not a different amount of space. Now, a number of companies we've talked to have said, well, maybe instead of having one centralized space, we need a couple or, you know, say two to three still great spaces, still foster that culture and collaboration, but a little bit more distributed. So I was I was talking to a um, actually a large REIT office tenant today, and, and that was sort of his gut. He said, you know, we have 90,000 feet in one location, and, and I'm thinking maybe what we need is like 50 and 20 and 20, right? So it's, you know, I, my... My team members have clearly said the benefit from working at home was not necessarily working at home, but reducing commute time and having more time with their family. And so, you know, it's going to have an impact. What the true kind of net ramifications are on square footage, I don't know. I think the, I think the big impact is, you know, in terms of the office environments or the environments buildings are in, it's going to exasperate, I think, the haves and the have-nots. And, you know, we, we may very, very well see, you know, some significant obsolescence in certain types of office buildings. I agree with you on everything you said. I mean, I, as a business owner myself, it's, it, and I love how you call it a culture hub or a collaboration hub. It's really hard to build culture through Zoom and it starts feeling pretty fake after a while. Um, right. and, then, and then I think about the kid that, or the young man that just got out of college or the young woman that just got out of college and is showing up to their first day at work and needs years of mentoring and, and folks that have experience around them. And I just can't imagine showing up to my first day at work, sitting in my bedroom, buying into the culture, buying into mentorship. It's just very hard to do through you know, Zoom. And I think the office, in, in my opinion, is actually going to be more appreciated than it ever has been, maybe in a different way. But I'm with you. Most people I'm talking to want to be back. Yeah. And I, I think that I, I 100% agree with, with your point. And, and maybe the piece we forget that is so powerful is what I would call the informal mentorship, where you are learning because you're in the room and you're observing and you're listening, and it may not even be in a formal meeting. It's just being in the office and listening to other people and simple things like how does someone handle a phone call or, you know, and, and that, that type of informal men mentorship is, I mean, it's incredibly important for, for folks. And so. Is there anything, you know, we kind of talked about how y'all are operating your properties. Is there anything that kind of comes off the top of your head of new technology or things you've implemented in your buildings that, you know, might be kind of permanent changes to make things kind of safer for the next couple of years? Um, not specifically yet, but we're looking at a, n a number of things. I mean, I think air quality will be at the top of the list of buildings, both, you know, are there upgrades we should be making in, in, in exist, you know, our existing portfolio or um, are there essentially changes to, to specs and technology we need to be making uh -huh. um, in, in our new buildings. I think that one's at the top. I think we're fortunate in the sense that our, our, our portfolio is positioned very well relative to, you know, what I, what I think is important to tenants in a, in a post COVID environment. But, but that being said, we're, you know, we're really thinking through things that are maybe seemingly simple, but is, you know, how do we make much bigger and inviting and usable stairwells in office buildings versus, you know, kind of the more typical fire stair? And so, you know, we're, we're really trying to think through how might people want to use the buildings differently. And we, we sort of talk about 
post-COVID, but I, I don't think you can look at it like this is sort of a one-time phenomenon, right? So I think there are a lot of, while not technology, there's a lot of operational things we've learned in terms of, you know, how we communicate with tenants and, you know, how people conduct themselves. And so, um, so yeah, there's, I mean, there are a lot of lessons both learned and to be learned for sure. Are y'all going to be aggressively looking to acquire more retail or hotels if there's a, a buying opportunity or how you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in Houston, multifamily has been fairly soft. I think the market environment presents an interesting opportunity in the sense that we're seeing a lot of institutional capital start to push properties to market and not because it's a good time to sell. They're just raising capital, I think, to, to have money to be opportunistic. And so, and the fact that right now institutional capital is really not playing in the market. And so they're, they're a bit frozen. And so we see a window where we can be nimble. And so right now we're, you know, we're looking at two opportunities in Houston where we're buying, you know, great class A, you know, multifamily at, at or below replacement cost. And we like that thesis. Actually, one of them is, is one of our own projects that we sold and, you know, we're, we're buying back. Hotels are obviously going to be hit hard and we're already seeing, you know, we're seeing sort of paper come to the market. We're not, uh, I don't think we're great at buying um, debt per se, um, but uh, we, we are looking at one hotel acquisition opportunity now. Um, I would say that's more, it's not so much that we love the hotel. We like the basis and, and the opportunity to have a covered land play. I mean, we're, we're comfortable with hotels. We're happy to operate it, but it's one where... The price is so discounted that it just makes the land um, attractive. But that, that's a long answer to say, yes, we think there's going to be a lot of opportunity and and you know we're hoping to take advantage of that. And, and I agree. I mean, I think I've been in the room with, you know, groups of institutional investors where some of them are, you know, prognosticating that retail is not even going to be an institutional asset class anymore. And so, you know, that, that just to me says opportunity. And so, um, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be fascinating to watch it, uh, unfold. And I'm, I'm assuming as far as new development in the hotel or retail world, we're probably going to see that hit pause for quite some time. It's going to be more acquisition of existing assets, or do you think we'll see kind of new stuff coming out of the ground anytime soon? Yeah, I think it, if you do, it'll be it will be limited and it will be very specific opportunities. But um, I, I mean, I think the you know the hotel development pipeline is largely shut down, which is a good thing. I mean, it's when the business is tough already, you don't need new supply coming online. And so um, I think it's going to be fairly, fairly limited. And to the extent we hope to push forward with development, I mean, retail is an important part of what we do from an amenity standpoint. But if I, I think about the things we're probably going to try to push forward on, I mean, the retail is still on a relative basis, you know, a fairly small amount of square footage. A few just questions on just development in general. Are a lot of your developments public private or are they all private? We have a mixture of both. And um, you know, City Center, for example, is um uh is all private. One of the projects I'm most proud of is called Kirby Grove, that was a, a public private partnership to essentially redevelop redevelop a an old park and it's generally located between River Oaks and uh and West U. You know, and and we came up with a financial structure where we sort of fabricated a, 
a core location for ourselves because of the adjacency to the park. But our development also created the financial opportunity to actually have funds to redevelop this park and ultimately uh, ultimately pay for its long-term maintenance. I mean, and that park won a ULI Global Open Space Award. And, you know, when, when I think how that park has truly changed the dynamic for people in that area, it's fantastic. And so we have other projects that sort of had limited participation from a public standpoint. So that might have been, you know, re- reimbursement of, of TERS dollars or, uh, or TIF dollars. You know, our East River project that's 150 acres, it'll be the equivalent of 65 downtown blocks. It's truly building a, a city. I mean, it'll be four city centers when it's done. I mean, that that is that in itself is a massive in- infrastructure uh, project and we're in the midst of uh, kind of negotiating our our long-term agreement with the city on on you know how reimbursements work. We really have a variety of structures you know across our portfolio and I, I think the key is is two things. One is and and you always get this from the from the public sector is the but for meaning without their participation would something go forward or would it be of a quality that has kind of the community impact. Um, that they would want. And then the second is really from our standpoint is more of from a control standpoint, what are we what are we potentially giving up relative to the benefit? And so in the case of city center, I'll, you know we we had an opportunity to get some infrastructure reimbursement, but all the, the the streets needed to be public to do it. and we decided we really wanted to maintain all the streets as private streets. And so in that case, we decided not to do it. But in the case of like our East River project, where it's literally city building, you, I mean, there's there's not an option. I mean, it's 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 not financially feasible to go build that level of infrastructure without public participation and and, and having public streets. And so, when you're doing a public-private partnership, I guess my first question is: Is it the private developer that kind of uh, makes the first pass at this as a structure that would work for us, or is it the public department going? here's a project, these are the terms we're willing to do it under, see if you can make it work, or does it, like, where does it yeah. start from? Yeah, so I, uh, I'll i use the, the two examples, I'll use two different examples, but so our East River project, I would say is, you know, there, there's an existing TERS, we knew that was the best reimbursement sort of structure, and so there you had a defined box and then it was really, then it was really, you know, being open book and putting all the numbers in front of the city and, and understanding the amount of increment we're going to create, how much of that are we going to get back, and then how much of the, the infrastructure cost was it going to reimburse, which, which wasn't still isn't anywhere near a hundred percent. So that one you sort of had you have a defined structure, right, and 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 mechanism to utilize. You know, in the case of the uh, of, of Kirby Grove and Levy Park, which I mentioned, that was really a creative process where actually it was the Upper Kirby Management District that came to us and said, we have a park, no one's ever in it. You guys have all these green spaces that always have people in it. You know, can you help us think through this? And I'm simplifying it, but the ultimately the structure we came up with was we would agree to do you know x millions of development which would create enough tax increment for them to turn around and sell bonds to build the park and the park was about 15 million dollars but then 
to have access to development sites, we agreed to ground lease those sites. So those ground lease payments would go back to funding the maintenance of the park. And it's one of the biggest challenges with public spaces and public parks is it's not just the cost to build it, it's the cost to maintain it. That's actually the big cost and maintain it right. And of course, if we were going to go build, you know, these these fantastic boutique office buildings and residential towers adjacent to the park, you know, we wanted to make sure the park was always maintained at a first-class uh, standard. But what is seemingly a fairly simple structure took us about two years to uh, to figure out. Yep. And then my last question on public-private partnerships, and it's probably case by case, but it sounds like in the case of Kirby Grove, they came to you. In most of those situations, is it an RFP process or y'all find a piece of public land that you kind of approach them or is it usually through the public reaching out to the private? Yeah, I would say for the most part, it's us trying to find market, you know, what we think of as market opportunities and then to really, you know, deliver what's the most impactful project for the city or the community is are there public dollars available and can that play a role? You know, fortunately, I think we've developed a reputation of, um, of you know, A, being good folks to work with. We try to operate on a very transparent and collaborative basis. And, and people know, I think, when we come to the table, we're asking not because we're trying to necessarily put, you know, two more dollars in our pocket, but we're asking because we're trying to make it the best we can. One more question, just kind of on real estate in Texas, and then I kind of want to just chat a little bit about ULI, and then we'll get to some personal questions to to wrap it up. But one thing that's come up a bunch is property taxes in Texas keep rising pretty dramatically, uh, especially in the last kind of five to 10 years. Do you have any opinion or do you sit on any board? I mean, you, you know a lot of the people around the state. Is this just something that we're in for a a ride to see how high property taxes go or, you know, do we think we're going to see them kind of taper off, especially with COVID? Yeah. I, I mean, it is, it is a challenge and it's a challenge on both sides, right? I mean, I don't, I don't think there's anybody that disagrees. The revenue is probably needed, but at the same time, there is sort of this sustainability question from the standpoint of who is, who's paying those taxes. And I think where, you know, right now where the public sector maybe doesn't fully appreciate is they think about office, especially and 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 even retail as sort of net leases, and they're saying, "Oh, landlord, you're just passing that on." What they forget is we're all sort of somewhat held to a market standard, right? We have to be in a range, and ultimately, the tenant is looking at what is my total cost. So, regardless of lease structure, they're still looking at their gross number. And so to the point, you know, there is a gross number they're willing to pay and taxes keep pushing up expenses, then it's just eroding net rents. And ultimately, that's then eroding values, which is counterproductive. And so it is it is a challenge and, and it's something we have to get our arms around. And, and, you know, I think it's an education process. But look, cities, cities are going to be really challenged, um, you know, with with shortfalls from the impact of COVID, both from the, re- the revenue side and the, and the cost side. And so um, it's, you know, we're in for a, for a challenge. Okay, so you are the chairman of Americas of ULI. Um, what has ULI meant to you and why has it been important? Yeah, um, so my first connection with ULI was really as a, 
as a graduate student and I would go to the library and read read case studies. And um, I just found it fascinating to sort of try to understand how how people actually did this thing called development that I was interested in. And um, I, I will say early in my career when I was, was with the first company I mentioned, I actually wasn't very good about networking. And, um, and when I came to Midway, I kind of had a window into an appreciation for, you know, the networks Brad had built. And so, you know, ULI was really where I, I decided to invest my time. And I think for me, well, I've been involved in, you know, NAOP and ICSC and all great organizations, at least for me, ULI was always the biggest tent of people, right? From the from all product sectors, from the public sector, from the private sector. And and I, I always enjoyed that. And so, you know, got very involved in in uh, in, in ULI Houston and the district council here, you know, was ultimately became chair here and, and chaired the, the spring meeting when we had it in Houston and then got more involved nationally. And, um, you know, for me, it's just been, it, it is a, and the other thing I'd say, it's a truly global organization. And um, I think for all of us, even though I can look at our company and say, well, we operate in Texas, that doesn't mean we shouldn't have an appreciation for or understand what's going on around the globe impacts us. Right. And so I, I always appreciated that. And it's just been, you know, I've formed great relationships there. I think, you know, the content is unbelievable. It's always been a place where I can learn whether that's through, you know, content or through my relationships there. And so, you know, much of the time that that I spend in the organization to me is is, is just giving back what I've gained. And, and the reality is like anything in life, you know, the more you give, the more you, you end up getting out of it. And so it's just for me, you know, for 25 years, it's, it's just been an integral part of my, uh, my career and sort of how I, how I think about real estate, how I think about the impact of real estate, and how I, you know, how I, you know, find and look up to mentors and learn from them. So it's, uh, it's, it's been great. I love it. You've talked about community on your website. You guys talk a lot about giving back and you all have a foundation called the Midway Foundation. I just wanted to ask you kind of what that is and uh, why it's important to Midway. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I give full credit to Brad for this. This was really his, you know, something he had conviction about. And for us, it it was twofold. It was um, very simple kind of biblical principle that to whom much is given, much is expected. And we've been blessed and it's important for us to give back. I think one of the, the tangential benefits that maybe we didn't realize was if we have this spirit of generosity or display, you know, this 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 notion of giving back is we can actually teach our team members how to give back and support them. You know, and and what's interesting to them and where they can give back. And what became apparent to me is, you know, I I was fortunate to grow up in a family that was not necessarily sort of largely philanthropic from a dollar standpoint, but always had conviction about giving back. And the reality is some people don't grow up with that experience. And so they almost need to be taught how to give back. And it's not because they it's not because they don't want to, it's just they've never you know, they've never, they've never experienced it or been exposed to it. So I think that's been a, a great byproduct. And 
you know, we put 5% of the ownership in our projects in the, in the foundation. And that's largely the funding um, mechanism. We have some focus areas for the foundation, um, which is largely focused around education, underprivileged children, um, and health and wellness. Um, but then outside of that, we support really whatever our team members want to, wherever they're willing to, you know, give of their own time and money, we're willing to support that. The other thing we do that I would urge, you know, and ask every company to think about is because it's easy to give and yet it's incredibly powerful is we give every team member one day off a month to give to give back. And so it's so that's, that's 12 days a year, but across, you know, 140 people now in our company, you know, that has real impact. And if you think about, you know, if we could if we could build sort of that across lots and lots of organizations, you know, the the impact can be just immense. And, you know, the reality is, is I, I think, you know, why we people go, oh, geez, you know, I need them working at that time. I, I think we, you know, we get back in just multiples of the time we give them. And it's just, you know, it's it's perspective. It's about culture. A lot of our our team members end up taking those days and doing things together, and you know they they form bonds and relationships um, during that time. So um, you know, of our core values, we have seven: the original six: um, integrity, passion, adaptability, quality, initiative, and teamwork. Were actually developed by the the team years ago. We actually added generosity later on because we just felt it was, you know, so important and, and fundamental to uh, to who we are. Man, I love that. I just made that note. I've I've never heard somebody say that they give their team a day off a, a month to go give back, but that is that's awesome. And you're right the the compounding effect of that if everybody did it would be would be massive. Uh, yeah, I think. You know, for, it's for us as leaders to lead and set the example. And, you know, there's there's no and there's no lack of, of need in, in our communities. And so uh, if we can play a, a small role. And, you know, as I said, we're I think in our in our DNA, we're community builders. And um, so to us, that's just, you know, that's just an integral piece of what, what we do. I love it, man. OK, do you have a morning routine and something that gets your day going? I do. And I've actually gotten, I think the older I've gotten, the more um, adamant I've got about doing it. Part of that is once your kids get a little older, it's easier. (laughs) (laughs) Mornings aren't quite as hectic and mine are are both um, in college now. But um, so I I typically get up and then I'll work out for uh, 30 to 45 minutes at home. And then probably about five years ago, I, I I started playing around with with meditating, and um, I am admittedly, you know, kind of an attention deficit problem. And um, for whatever reason, that really does help. And and most days, I do it for about ten minutes, and then after that, I'll uh, I'll read um, something from from the Bible every day, it's usually in the form of a, a devotional, and then pray. And that to me, just those three things get the day started right for me, and it's. Um, I find if I start the day sort of hectic and frazzled, that tends to not stop the rest of the day. And it just kind of, you know, you're worn out at the end. And so um, my, my team probably likes me a lot better when I start the day with those, <laughs> those three things. 
But, you know, it's hard. We all have obligations, whether they're breakfast meetings or board meetings or whatever. But actually, more and more, I've gotten very deliberate about uh, protecting that time. And um, and and also just, I think, self-awareness. You know, I'm 51 now that, you know, you, you just you got to take care of yourself physically. And um, and I find if I work out every day, you know, I, I stick with it. If I try to work out three or four days a week, there's always an excuse, you know, one day, another day not to work out. And then it just kind of unravels. And so I, I just try to commit to do it every day. I love it. Is there anything that jumps to mind of the best advice you've ever been given? Hmm. God, I've been, you know, I've been blessed to, you know, have the luxury of seeking advice, you know, and mentorship from a lot of people that have, uh, you know, have helped shape i think who i am and in my career and it didn't come from one person but it's certainly i think been the aha moment in my career that is and i talked about it relative to values and some of it was just something i think in my first job when i left that was foundational for me that i realized you know values weren't you know those 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 were those were a foundation and and I was I was never going to be willing to compromise those. And so I would say the the aha moment which came later, it was always important to me, but how you truly integrate, you know, values into your organization. And, you know, we have a whole hiring process really built around those seven core values. And we ask people to write about what those values mean to them personally and professionally. And and I can weed out a candidate, you know, in two seconds reading that and not say we're going to hire everyone based on a good response, but you either get the dic- dictionary version or you get a response that is truly sort of meaningful and, and tells you that, that those are values that, that, that is important to somebody. And so, you know, we've, we've been blessed to build a team and, and, you know, where where it became so prevalent to me as we went through a, a, a growth spurt and and we sort of had some churn and I thought, I was like, what are we, what are we missing? And what came back to me was the people that kind of came and went, they there sort of wasn't a, a basic kind of DNA connection relative to values. And you know, it's like getting married. It's not that you're gonna you're gonna go through difficult times, but if you're, you know, if your foundation is the same, then you're gonna be able to work through those together. And and I've kind of taken the same approach to trying to build a, a, a the DNA around building a team here. That let's start with values, and if we start there, chances are you know we're going to have a much higher uh, success rate. And um, so I think it, you know when I when I have the opportunity to try to get back and talk to other folks starting businesses or young entrepreneurs, I I really try to highlight that that you know have. Have conviction about what you stand for. Don't ever compromise it. And then try to build what it is you stand for into your organization and be deliberate about it as possible. I love it. All right, last question. We'll, we'll pick the most busy highway in the country and you own a billboard on that highway and you could put anything on it for the world to see. What would you put on that billboard? I would put leave it better than you found it. I love it, man. Thank you so much uh, for joining me today. I I look forward to uh, I look forward to seeing you soon. It's been a while, but yeah, it was great to connect. Well, thanks so much for doing this, and honored to uh, to be asked to do it. And uh, thank I appreciate a, a ton it. of you and and your organization. And uh, uh, always love catching up. 
Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.